What kind of person are you? What? Hold fast. What does that mean? <laughs> it means you're steady? Yeah. You, you, Lyle's a pretty steady guy. That's true. I agree. Anybody else? What kind of person are you? Old school. And what does that mean to you, old school? Old-time ideas. Old-fashioned. That's all right. The ancient. Okay. All right. You like, like what? Hold fast and old-fashioned. All right. Okay. Anybody else? Huh? You're a blessed person. That is a great way to describe yourself. We need more of that kind of thinking of uh, just that positive the sense of being blessed. As God's people, aren't we blessed? Amen. We're all kinds of people, right? Anybody else? Larry, what kind of person are you? No? <laughs> A nut? Yeah. Every church has some. That's all right. Somebody's got to do it, right? <laughs> Well, you're a crackpot. That's what that's what Jeremy Jeremiah says. Not Jeremy says it too, I think. But um, we're pretty much ordinary folks, aren't we? I mean, anybody a millionaire? Don't raise your hand because you know preachers don't want to talk to the millionaires. You know, I mean, uh, famous, uh, ordinary. We're just ordinary people. We just come out of nowhere. We're we're just living, right? Just living our lives, living the best life possible, right? Yeah. I think God loves ordinary people, don't you? I think he loves everybody, but I think he loves ordinary people. We need to hear that. And we also need to hear that God uses ordinary people, that, that we don't all have to be Billy Graham or someone like that. God to use. God will use each and every one of us as well. Let's talk about this morning. Let's talk about what kind of people God uses. He uses the nuts. I know he does. He uses the nuts. He uses the, the steadfast. And also the old-fashioned. And he uses the young and the old and the in-between. So let's pray before we go much further. Father, thank you for loving us as we are. and Thank you, God, that you love us so much that you don't leave us as we are. Instead, you make us into somebody new, the people you want us to be. And, Father, we know that you have a plan for each and every one of our lives. And we know you have a plan for our neighbors and friends who don't know you. We know that you have a plan for them as well because you're their creator. And you love them too. And so today, Father, help us to turn our hearts and ears to your throne, to listen to your voice as I go through this message time, as I try to lead us to your throne. I just pray you'd speak through me and that you would uh, get a hold of their, uh, everybody's hearts, including mine, and remind us that God uses ordinary folks, ordinary people. Help us, Father, to, to cling on to that and help us to release to that, that we will do the things you call us to do. Help us to say yes more to you than no. Help us to say less of no to you. Help us to say more. And in all this, Father, I just pray you'd use me for your glory, that uh, everything that I say would be true, would come from your word, that would represent your word and your truth, and would be spirit-led, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God works the most, I believe, the most through ordinary people. Billy Graham preached to millions and millions of people in his lifetime. Millions. Not, you know, not all of them in person, but on the radio and on TV and on uh, in film. He preached to millions and millions of people. There's probably nobody else 
who has ever preached as many people as Billy Graham. But we're not all Billy Graham, are we? No, and we're not meant to be. God works the most through ordinary people. Ordinary people in ordinary churches. People who come out of nowhere. People who aren't from well-to-do or powerful families. People like Noah. Have you, have you ever read the story of Noah in Genesis? Right? Amen? Yeah, or, Noah's just an ordinary guy. He was, a, he was probably a farmer. And he built a gigantic boat, right? The, a big, gigantic boat that everybody today believes. Well, not everybody. But people believe, oh, it's not possible that that man could have built that big, gigantic boat. But he did. And the thing of it is, we're still talking about it today. Thousands of years later, did something. He used Mark, John Mark, to write a gospel. John Mark was a Christian, but he failed in his faith. He abandoned the field. He went back uh, home because he couldn't handle it anymore. It was too hard at that time for him. He used Mary, that young girl, to be the mother of Jesus. He used Ruth, who wasn't even an Israelite, and she's in the family line of Jesus. And he used uh, um, Joshua. Joshua, uh, an ex-slave who became a general and a leader of a great nation called Israel. He was the one who led them into the promised land, not Moses. Right? Ordinary people who come out of nowhere and God uses them. And when they let God use them, something great happened in their lives and in the world around them. Their world changed because of these people, these men and women that God used. They become part of history. We still talk about Noah and Joshua and Ruth and Mary and many others. We talk about all these people because God was able to work in their lives. Because God was able to use them in their world. Think about the Christian life today. The Christian life can, today can be compared to a sporting event. Let's just say football, right? Because we've just gotten done with the NFL season. Life, Christian life is a lot like the football uh, season, like the NFL. There's people who know the game intricately. I, there are people I know who, who know all the stats of the players. They know everything about the team. They know all the rules and regulations. They know the names of the, of the players. They know the names of the coaches. They, know, they know, even know the names of the referees. Then there's the other people, the other side, the other group. They know the game too. They're the ones who come up with the strategies. They, they play the game. They're the players, the coaches and the players and the referees. They're in the game. They take the risks. They get the bruises. They're the ones who truly experience the victories and defeats. They know the difficulties and struggles of the game because they're in the game. They're not sitting on the sideline. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where you're at in your faith today, right now. I don't know if, you, if you're where you need to be, if God is using you, or, or maybe you need to get more involved in your faith, more in your relationship with God. And I do know this. I know this about each and every one of you. God wants to use you. Not just use me or deacons or Sunday school teachers. He wants to use you as well. He wants to use you for his glory, for his kingdom. Maybe you've considered putting your faith in Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're wrestling with this whole idea of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're ready to do that. I hope so. God wants to use you too. But you also have to let him. See, it's all up to us. It really is. A lot of this is up to us. God uses ordinary people. I wish we could get that into our minds. That he uses us for his kingdom work and we get to see him do great things. Like number one on your outline this morning. Look at your outline. God uses people like Ananias who helped Paul. 
He, he uses people like Ananias who helped Paul. Go to Acts chapter 9 with me. When you get there, find verse 8. We know very little about Ananias. And these people we know very, very, very little. Some of these people that I'm going to talk about, we don't even know their names. Acts chapter 9, verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. The Lord's, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man. And all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. The God uses people like Ananias, who helped Paul. Now, at this time, Paul was still Saul. He was at the beginning of this relationship with Christ. He was still a Pharisee. He was still violently persecuting the church. He was still arresting Christians, throwing them in prison. He even stood by and watched why people killed Christians and gave his, his affirmation, his, his uh, approval. And so he's traveling to Damascus here in Acts chapter 9. He's traveling to Damascus with letters that give him authority to arrest Christians, not just anybody, but Christians, and throw them into prison. So that's how he met Jesus. He's on the road. He's almost to Damascus. He has this encounter with Jesus, and he was struck down, blinded by the power and might of God, and he was taken into the city of Damascus where he spent three days without food or water. God wanted to use Saul. We don't see that at this point because we get caught up in all this, uh, the miraculous stuff, that he got struck down, that he was blinded for three days. He didn't eat or drink anything for three days. He's taken to the city and he's just in somebody's house named Judas. But here's the idea. God wanted to use Saul. Now look at verse 10 with me. In Damascus, there was a, man, a disciple named Ananias. A disciple in the Bible, in the New Testament, means he was a follower of Christ. And the Lord, that means Jesus. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias was a follower of Jesus. That's a disciple. He was living there in Damascus when Saul has this encounter with Jesus and struck down, blinded. And he has this vision. He has this encounter with Jesus himself, and Jesus speaks to him. Now, this is not a dream. It's a vision in a sense he sees and hears something that he can't maybe see or actually be right there in his very presence. But he has this vision, and he talks to Jesus. He even describes, Jesus even describes for him Saul's vision 
of Ananias coming to him so he can see again. God wanted to use Ananias too. See how this is working out? He's using these different people. He's working in the lives of these different people. Does it take us to get struck down blind to let ourselves, let God use us? I hope not. We better not, right? Amen? Yeah. But look how Ananias reacted to Jesus. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from chief priests to arrest all of who call on your name. He tries to explain to Jesus. Now, do we do that? Do we try to tell Jesus, well, I'm not really the skill. I don't know if I can do that. He, he's trying to explain to Jesus who Saul was and why he had come to Damascus. As if Jesus didn't already know all that, right? Jesus knew all that. He knew everything. He knows everything. Ananias saw helping Saul was risky for him. And I can understand this, but when the Lord calls, when Jesus calls us to do something, we better get off our knees and go do it. That's right. That's right. He didn't ask Ananias to do something difficult or complicated or something that he didn't have the ability or resources to do, he simply asked Ananias, go into Damascus, go to Straight Street, find Judas's house, go in there, put your hands on Saul, and his, his sight will be restored. That's not hard. He, he probably knew exactly where Judas was. He probably knew exactly where the house, what street and all that, where to go exactly. And Jesus did take no for an answer. I like that, don't you? Sometimes we just need to be told to do something. Right, parents? We need to tell the kid, go do something. And God the Father needs to tell us sometimes, no, you go do this. I think I think I would I wish we he would do that more. For me. Not just for you, but for me. Because I would go more often, I think, if he would simply tell me that. He didn't take no for an answer. He actually makes a, a command out of this. Verse 15. But the Lord said, Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. The Lord Jesus told Ananias, Saul was going to go and take his name to the Gentile people, the nations, the different people around, not just the Jewish people, but the Greek people and the Parthenians and all these other other groups of people, nations, the nations to the Romans in Rome. He was going to go there. We know that. We know a lot of the places where God was going to send him. He was going to send him to their kings. God had Jesus had a plan to send Saul to the kings of the nations. Isn't that amazing? He was going to get an open door into the governments. I believe God wants to do that today. I don't, I don't know why God doesn't want. I, I believe firmly that God wants His people in the state houses talking to the to the people who are running the government about Jesus, about God, about their walk with Him, about their responsibility. Maybe somebody, maybe some somebody. A Christian needs to go to New York and talk to Governor Cuomo about the value of life. Don't you think? About what God thinks about the value of life. I think that's true. And maybe while they're up there, they ought to go to Virginia and talk to that governor too. I think that's maybe that's what that needs to go on more. And maybe they need to go up into the halls of Congress and talk to our Senate and our Congress people and tell them, here's the value of life. You value your life, but do you value anybody else's? Here's what God says about life. I think that's what he wants. 
I don't necessarily think he wants us to be theocratic, but I do think he wants to have Christians be more, a little more influential with leaders about our beliefs. And I'm not saying we have to vote for one party. I don't agree with that either. I think we need to vote for people who, who really govern off of our values, Christian values of life and liberty and freedom of speech, things like that. The Lord told Ananias, Saul was going to take his name to the Gentile people, to the nations, to their kings and governments, and even, even to the people of Israel. God didn't leave out his own chosen people, did he? He said, I want you to go to them too. I want you to explain to them who Jesus really, who I am. And then he told something very important about Saul. He told Ananias, this is about Saul's future. Verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He tells that to Ananias before he tells that to Saul. Isn't that amazing? So you're going to go and you're going to put your hands on this guy and he's going to see again and he's going to suffer because he follows me. You have to go. We don't know what Jesus' plan is for other people that he wants us to help. We don't know what his plan is for them. Sometimes we don't know what God want, why God wants us to help people and who exactly until he tells us. We just need to let God use us, right? Yeah. To help people the way Ananias helped Saul. To help him get ready to do what God planned for his life. This is the way God often works. He takes ordinary people and he uses them to help somebody else fulfill God's plan. Think about another person like a runaway slave named Onesimus. From the, from the letter to Philemon. Saul wrote the letter to Philemon. Philemon. Saul, by then, was Paul. In Philemon's 1, verse 10 to 13, Saul, or Paul, wrote to his friend Philemon and said, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. He'd been a slave serving in Philemon's house. He was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart. Back to you, I would have liked to keep him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. And that's something. A runaway slave helps Paul. Isn't that amazing? See how God works? I think this is all God's plan. When Onesimus ran away from his master, who was a Christian, he met Paul and became a Christian. And that's something. Onesimus ended up becoming like a son to Paul. That's how close they became. They became like father-son. That's how much Onesimus tried to help him and how much Paul appreciated him. I believe this was all part of God's plan. That somehow he worked all this together. God ensured that when Onesimus ran away from his master, from, from Philemon, he ended up with Paul so he would become a Christian and help Paul. God wanted to use Onesimus and God wanted to use Philemon, ordinary people. Well, Ananias did what God told him to do, what Jesus said to do. He went to Saul and did what he was told to do, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Isn't that amazing? 
There's much more to this than just the miraculous story of him get, regaining his sight. That's nothing for Jesus. That's nothing for God to do to restore somebody to physical health. We know from the rest of the New Testament, if you read the rest of it, that Saul went on and he became Paul, and Paul let God use him to help a lot of people come to know Christ. Matter of fact, Paul is still helping people come to know Christ today, 2,000 years later. Isn't that amazing? Man, what kind of an impact could that be for us? What, if, what kind of a legacy could we leave behind if we caught a hold of that vision that God wants to use us the way he used Ananias and Paul and Philemon and Onesimus? God uses people like that all the time, all the time. Number two, God uses people like Stephanus who helped the church, the early church. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. First Corinthians chapter 16, it's at the end of the, chat of, the, of the letter. It says in verse 15, You know that the house of the Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors. And I, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus arrived because they've supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. All we know about this guy named Stephanus is right here in these few verses. He's not mentioned anywhere else. We know nothing about him but other than what Paul tells us about him right here. But what a testimony to his faith and his willingness to let God use him. You know, a testimony doesn't have to be much. Your legacy doesn't have to be very much. All it has to say is you did something great for somebody else. That's all, that's all any of us should ever want. God used Stephanus to help the early church. Survive and thrive. Look at verse 15. You know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. You know the word, what it means to be devoted? You know what that means? It means they were really into this. It means they were really committed to helping the saints. The idea that Stephanus served the saints, saints is that God used him in more than one congregation. Yeah, that God used him in ways that was bigger than maybe Stephanus thought at the moment that, that his impact was far greater than he knew. When Paul mentions somebody by name, when he, when he puts somebody's name in one of his letters, that person usually had done something that caught his attention. It means he did something really good or really, really bad. Stephanus and his household were the first believers in Christ in this region called Achaia. Achaia was a region of Greece. It wasn't all of Greece, but it was in Greece. And it's where the city-states of Sparta, Athens, and Corinth were. These were very extremely large cities, very influential cities. They were cosmopolitan, meaning people from all over the world went to Athens, went to Sparta, went to Corinth, and did business or lived there or went in and out. They were extremely pagan cities as well in the ancient world. To become a Christian in those cities in that place and in that time was to make a radical decision and a major change of life. The ancient world was far more dangerous than America is today. We hear all kinds of stories about, and there is a lot of violence in America, but it was far more, more dangerous than the ancient world. There were no sheriffs. There were no police departments. There was nothing like that. There was, there was the military, and they ran everything. But if you got knifed in an alley or a street, you got knifed. That was it. 
And if you weren't part of the religious group, you could be persecuted. And they were. Christians were suffered terribly in the ancient world. But part of the change that came over Stephanus involved allowing God to use him. He didn't care about the threat or the potential of threat or anything like that. He allowed God to use him to help the church or churches in Greece where the saints needed the help the most. And this is what many of the early Christians are known for even today. We know that many of the early Christians sacrificed a great deal to help the church grow. Acts 11, verse 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. Therefore they did this, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. There was a great famine. And the people in, in other parts of the world that where Paul and Silas were, where they were out sharing the gospel, talking about Jesus, they sent the churches they planted would send resources back to Jerusalem. In Galatians 6, verse 10, here's what we're told today. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We're especially supposed to look out for each other and for other churches that struggle. The church today needs its people to come together. The church today needs the people, the membership, the, the believers that gather in one place to come together to help the church do the work God wants the church to do so the church can survive, so the church can thrive on into the future. We're not just supposed to get by. Did you ever think about that? We're supposed to be thriving. That's what called bearing fruit is. I want Cornerstone to continue on way into the future, long after I'm gone. Someday I do want to see Cornerstone up on O'Connell Road in a brand new building. I want to see us up there worshiping and serving out of a brand new building on O'Connor Road. But I really want to see more people come to saving faith in Christ. I want that more. Because we can start doing that now. And we need to. I believe God wants to use us to do this and, all, and many other things. I, I believe God wants to help us as a church to grow both spiritually and numerically. To strengthen the unity of the church. I think he wants us to be more unified. So other people can hear about Jesus and believe in him. That's what Stephanus did 10, 000, or 2,000 years ago. And I believe that's what we're called as a church to do today. So let's let God use us. Amen? Yeah. God uses all kinds of folks. All kinds of folks. Ordinary folks. People like Ananias who helped Paul and Stephanus who helped the early church. And number three, God uses people like these men who helped their friend meet Jesus. Go to Mark chapter 2 now. Here's the thing about this, and this is why I don't really care about uh, glory. and We shouldn't care about glory. These guys don't even have their name in the, in the Bible. That's something. But they weren't worried about that. They weren't even thinking about that. They were simply thinking about their friend. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. So many gathered that there, were, there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this guy talk like that? Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. He said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is, it easy, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. These guys didn't even get their name in the paper, did they? They weren't concerned about that. They didn't care about that. I bet they didn't complain. They fulfilled what their mission was, getting their friend to Jesus and seeing him walk out. You know, some of, if you read the gospel, some of Jesus' greatest moments took place when he got into a disagreement with the religious leaders of the day, when they had this conflict, and he just, just dealt with them. And I like the way he deals with them. He doesn't really talk to them a lot. He just points out who he is. They would like to argue with Jesus all the time. Every time they could, they would find him, and they'd argue with him, especially about what could or could not be done on the Sabbath. Oh, you can't do that. You can't heal somebody on the Sabbath. You can't eat a piece of grain off of a head of a piece of wheat. You shouldn't be doing that. And he just kind of laughed at it. He just dealt with them. But the thing that really got them going was when Jesus would forgive someone's sins. He would tell somebody in public, your sins are forgiven. Well, that really wound them up and got them going. And he didn't like that. He didn't mind. Here in Mark chapter 2, we're told about a time in Capernaum, a small town, where Jesus was speaking at a house. And some men took their friend, their paralyzed friend, to meet him there. Well, they couldn't get in. There's too many people. They couldn't get into the doorway. They couldn't get in anywhere in the house. So what do they do? Did they go home? Did they give up? Did they quit? No. They decided they weren't going to wait outside. They were going to get their friend into that house. So what do they do? They go up on top of the house. They dig a hole in the roof. And they lower their friend on his mat down into the house. You know, I wonder what the owner of that house thought. You know? What did that owner think? You're tearing my house apart. You're ripping up my house. It's going to cost me a lot of money to fix my roof. Think about that. What would you feel if, you, if Jesus told you to tear your roof off so somebody could meet Jesus? Well, that's going to cost me some money. Okay. He gave you to the first time yet, right? He'll give it to you again. They decided they weren't going to wait. They weren't going to give up. I like that about these guys. They don't get their name in the paper, and they don't quit. Those are the kind of guys I like. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he's talking to them and not paralytic. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. The man on that had two problems. We only really see one, but actually there's two problems here. One, he was paralyzed. That means he couldn't have a family if he didn't already have one. He couldn't get a job. He couldn't make a living. He couldn't do much of anything other than maybe. The most he could probably do is lay around in bed. But there was a greater problem, and Jesus addresses that problem first. And that problem is he needed his sins to be forgiven. That's what he needed. Every person's greatest problem, yours and mine, every person walking the streets of Lawrence or Ottawa or Kansas City or Topeka is sin. Sin is our greatest problem. It's not our physical problems or physical needs or material needs. It's sin. Now, I would never dismiss physical disabilities. 
I have family members with physical disabilities. So I'm not dismissing that. But as terrible as they are, our greatest need is for forgiveness and grace. And for those, we need Jesus. And if we look to him, he'll take care of our disabilities. Our greatest need is for forgiveness. And so is our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our fellow students. Everybody we know and don't know is forgiveness. I love how these men, this man's friends were willing to do whatever it took to get him to Jesus. I like that part. I love it. And just so there wasn't any misunderstanding about whether or not Jesus can forgive sins, look with me again at verse 6. Mark chapter 2, verse 6. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Not only could he heal that man's disability, but he forgives the man's sin. Now, when that happened, what did the religious leaders hear? They heard blasphemy. That Jesus was comparing himself to God, and he is God. And he does compare himself to God because he is God. But the man on the mat, what did he hear? He heard grace. That's what he heard. Two different people heard two different things. Isn't that amazing? One group hears blasphemy. Another hears grace. Jesus' ability to heal that man's disability. The illustration shows and proves his ability to forgive sin. And look at the reaction of the people watching in the house that day as that man got up, picked up his mat, and walked out. Verse 12, this amazed everybody, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Man, that's what I want to see happen today. God working so powerfully through a church of people that people will be amazed at that church. How did that church do all that? How did that church build out there? How did that church, how how that happen? How did that happen? They started out so small, and look at the impact they have. Look what they've done. That's what I want to see. That's what I want to see God do. The only way this man was able to meet Jesus was because his friends took him to Jesus. They took him to where Jesus was. They made sure he got into the house. They didn't give up. When we meet people that, who don't know Christ as their Savior, what do we see? Do we see their desperate state? Do we see that they're desperate in their need for Jesus? Or do we think, well, they'll be okay. I mean, they'll, they'll meet Jesus somehow. Jesus will make sure it happens. Do we think that? I think sometimes we do, don't we? We don't like to admit it, but we do. When Andrew met Jesus and realized who Jesus was, what did he do? He went and found his brother Peter. And took Peter to meet Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John said and who followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, Simon Peter, and tell him, We found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Now we would think that Peter would be the one to take Andrew to meet Jesus, but it's Andrew. And this is really the only thing Andrew's not famous for, is introducing Peter, his brother, to Jesus. And what did Peter? What did God do with, with Peter? Peter's got three letters that he wrote. He's got great things that he's done. 
Now, we don't know what all Andrew did, but we do know that he introduced Peter to Christ. So God wanted to use Andrew, and he wanted to use Peter. That's the amazing thing. Until we realize other people's desperate need for Jesus, we're not going to see God doing much in our church. Until we see Lawrence the way God does, as lost and in need of grace, we're not going to see him working in our community. I believe God wants to use us as a church to help more people to meet Christ. I think that's what he wants. I think see, he wants to see this place. He wants to fill this place up. And I think he wants to use us to do it. They're all around us. They're desperate for God's grace, not God's judgment. They don't need, they, they're not desperate for that. They might be rich. They might be poor. They might be sick. They might be well. They might be happy and satisfied. They might be struggling. But they all need Jesus. Desperately. Do we see the desperate need other people have? Now, listen, I understand this. Sharing Jesus' story can be hard. can be hard. That's why we need God to give us grace and strength to do it. We need him to lead us and direct us and strengthen us to help people so they can meet Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You ever have that nudge in your mind, your spirit, your heart? Did you say something about your faith, about Jesus, about being a Christian, about God to somebody? You ever have that little voice, that nudge? Then ask God to give you grace and strength and the ability to follow through. Let him lead you. Wherever he leads, I'll go. That's our invitation song this morning. Wherever he leads, I'll go. might just be across the street, next door to the cubicle, across the room, at work, in a classroom with a teacher or another student, whoever. could be the person on the other side of the gas station, the person who cuts your hair or serves you your lunch, whatever it is. Let God's Spirit nudge you and then ask Him for strength and grace to do it. And let's let, let God use us. We're all ordinary folks. Let's stand and get ready as we get ready to sing. Wherever He leads, I'll go. Father, help us to do that. And we know that most of the folks... Most of us, you're not calling us to go around the world. 